you're listening to Firm Up, the Fermented Food Podcast, where we discuss anything and everything fermented. It's a weekly show. We talk about the art, the science, the history of anything fermented foods. We're your hosts, Brandon and Daniela. This is episode 14. Wow, 14. Yes, we're on 14 already. And today's episode, as we said, is going to be about botulism and the other fears of fermenting foods, of leaving things on the countertop and letting them, the microorganisms do what they do. A lot of people have fears about those kind of things. And so this is the episode. If you have fears, listen to this episode. Hopefully it will ease some of your fears. If you know other people that think you're crazy for fermenting things and leaving them out, then send them to this episode. Or just tell them they're crazy. Tell them they're crazy instead of you being crazy. Yeah. We ideally are trying to get people interested in fermentation, not just shut them down. Good yes. point. Good point. Yes. But we can, you can, hopefully by the end of this, you'll realize that those fears are a little crazy. Not you, just those fears. So if you, you know, are, are, are listening to this because someone sent you to it, send any questions that you have regarding this or any extra fears that we're not covering today to podcast at firmup.com. And we will just jump right in today. We'll finish up with some follow-up and also talking about the Good Food Festival and the kimchi challenge that was there at Which the end. Which was delish. Trying a lot of kimchi was good. So stay tuned at the end. We'll cover all those kind of things. But just in case you are one of those people that have been sent to this podcast just to listen to this one, we hope that you'll listen in the future as well. But we'll get right to the topic. And so when we talk about botulism, what we're talking about, because it's very common. I mean, have you ever heard anyone ask, say, um, I am afraid I'm going to get botulism? To be honest, no. That's good. I, I actually hadn't really known that much about botulism until really talking with you about it. Um, so, But that's also because botulism comes with fermentation, and I don't know too many people that really ferment actively. So probably that's probably why. But go ahead. Well, yeah, and that's kind of... There, it is a common fear, and it's relatively unfounded. But botulism is a very serious, uh, serious thing, and it's it's very serious, as in it's a potentially lethal neuropathic disease, and it's it's from the bacteria Clostridium botulinum, and it's the neurotoxin botulin which causes botulism, and it comes from the Latin botulus which is sausage equals sausage. And, um, and it comes from that because botulism tended to first be discovered and be connected to what was happening through sausages, through fermentation of meats. Okay. So it's, it's according to the, the CDC, you know, in the United States, the center for disease control and prevention. It's one of the most, it is the most deadly toxin to humans. It can be used as, it, there's the fear of it in being comparison used. to what Just any other toxin in the world. It takes such a small amount to consume. To, no, to, 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 to consume, to get in an open wound. Um, it doesn't take very much and a person can die. What does it do to a person's body? Well, it does a lot of different things. Um, you know, and, and there's no escaping. You can't like botulism. cure it. There's no escaping. You can, you can, you can, you can survive from it. And, the few cases of botulism each year, no one died, say, in 2011, which is the most recent CDC information. 
So yes, we have gotten much better because it's such a serious thing. There, the resources for fixing the issue, and we'll get a little bit more into that of, of what happens and whatnot, but there's no escaping Clostridium botulinum, which is the bacteria. There's no escaping that because it's everywhere. It's in the soil. It's in marine life. So eating, it's on vegetables, it's on fruits, it's on fish. And it's on the surfaces of those things. So it's it's not that the bacteria itself is bad. It's when it has the, the right opportunities to expand and to grow and to multiply, and it creates the botulin toxin. That's really the issue. So... It's, it's not as, you know, just, just so you understand, like in the U S in 2011, there was 145 or 140 cases of, uh, of botulism, but no one died. No one died. And in average, average on a yearly, yearly basis is about 145 cases of botulism a year. Now we're talking botulism, not always from food. Only 15% of that is food borne illness. So someone consuming something getting botulism from that or indirectly from that. But 65% of it is infant botulism. And that's one of the reasons why honey is not recommended for children under, I believe, the age of one. Oh, so all of those cases, they're not even adults? No, 15% are foodborne related. 65% is infant. An infant can be eating honey because botulism is more has more opportunity to grow in honey and is in small doses, but still not creating a lot of botulin. But of those 65 cases of infant botulism, a lot of it isn't even food related at all. It's not honey related. It's not food related. It's that the infant's gut is still adjusting and or the rest of the microbiome of the infant isn't as balanced. And so that may be a time when clostridium can get into the system and proliferate. So we're not going to talk about infant botulism today. And instead, you know, we're looking at that 15% of foodborne. The other percentage, it comes from 20% of wound. So if there's an open wound and there is clostridium botulinum available to get into that wound, it can infect it. The majority of those cases though, are dirty needles and specifically from black tar heroin injection. Oh, so if you're doing heroin, (laughs) probably recommend not doing black tar heroin. Although the percentage is still so low of people that are actually getting this, that you're probably safe. So don't do heroin. Are you saying that we kind of consume part, part of this bacteria every day, just in a small dose, if it's in soil, in plants or on plants? Well, the bacteria are there in general. And yes, if you're eating the raw forms of these things, you are probably digesting some of the bacteria. But just because you're digesting the bacteria, there's all kinds of pathogenic bacteria that we digest, but they're not in high enough levels to cause issues. Or there are high enough levels of positive beneficial bacteria to counteract it. And we're going to get a little bit more into it, a little bit more detail about what are the conditions that make it... uh, available for clostridium botulinum to to proliferate and then by proliferating it's producing the toxin that is the most deadly toxin in the world and a little bit more about that deadly toxin i mean it's been you know a wep- uh it's a concern for bioterrorism 
Wow. Because it could be used as um, put into the, you know, water stream, air, otherwise, you know, it's it, it can be used that way. And, and even I forgot to write down where uh, this was in, in history, but there was supposedly this, these ancient people or uh, not ancient, but long time ago, people that would actually stick meat in the ground, purposely rot it and specifically to make it a good situation for the Clostridium botulinum to proliferate, make the botulin, and they would stick spears into it and whatnot. And, you know, that would be a great way to attack people because even if you don't kill them, they're going to die. They're, well, back then they probably would have died. Yes. Sweet. I mean, not no, sweet. it's not. I mean, it's yes, it's nice, interesting strategy. And I guess if you're on that side, it's good. But I don't know if both sides were doing it. Again, I'd have to look that up and I'll try and follow up with that in the future, future episode. But of the foodborne botulism, again, 15% of 145 people or 140 people from 2011, which again is the latest data that there is. It's usually a year behind or whatnot for what's available online. You'll find all of this information. You can look at previous years as well at firmup.com slash podcast slash 14 for the show notes and links. In 2011, there was 20 cases of foodborne intoxication. And of that, there were no deaths because again, we've gotten pretty good at this whole getting this stuff taken care of. Of those things, there were questionable questionable products that did not test positive for botulism, but it was still a botulism infection. So how exactly those things happen, probably have to dig a little bit deeper to figure out how that all clarifies and whatnot. But for those that were very specific botulism, it was home canned corn, home canned beans, seal blubber, homemade sauce, and beaver. Way to not to can. Really quickly though, how quickly does it spread or how quickly can one die from it? Do you know? Well, symptoms can set in in 12 to 36 hours oh, so after the ingestion. I mean, it takes a little like while. This but just like, poof, someone's gone. There are cases of coming on as early as four hours and what as are late the as eight days. Some of those different... Well, first, what it is is the botulin inhibits production of acetylcholine, which is probably more than you need to know, but it's the chemical that acetylcholine is the chemical that produces the bridge across synapses. So by doing that, it's causes paralysis. Um, some of the first things that come on are like a flaccid paralysis of motor and autonomic nerves and specifically cranial nerves. So your brain just kind of slows down. Wow. Not exactly a very scientific description of it, but that's kind of some of the initial complaints though, are the blurred vision, the difficulty swallowing and difficulty speaking. That'd be freaky. Very scary. Definitely indeed. I don't know what the the cognition level is as these things are happening as well. So I don't know if it's a slowed cognition, especially since it's going for the cranial synapses I, or the nerves. I don't know if it's really an like, immediate thing as in the brain stops functioning to the same extent as well. doesn't start killing a person right away, but it's. I wonder how much of that is conscious like oh my gosh what's going on kind of thing or if it's someone else that kind of has to watch for it i think a person obviously recognizes that they can't are having trouble speaking or swallowing or swallowing yes definitely but those kind of things lead to respiratory failure and paralysis so a person cannot move um even on on wikipedia there's a good image of of a, a a young man who has been infected and like pulling on his eye and different things like that, like fully conscious. So again, a person is conscious. It's not like they're like 
zombies or are dead yeah. or not like thinking, but they they really can't. They're paralysis. They can't move. They How are, can they pull on their eye then? Like pull on the eyelid, pull on the down. But if droopiness. they can't move, they can't. Someone was a, oh, an example of oh. like how not responsive they were like there was like a in oh, between so like they look not. like they look completely blank slates with eyes like they're closed dead. but then eyes open they're just like completely blank slates it's so freaky very freaky and very serious and it's killed a lot of people throughout history and it sounds Luckily, like canning is bad i'm never gonna can don't, there's no need to be afraid of canning i don't personally can but we're gonna try and not make this a anti-canning episode because it's really not if you can correctly just like it's important to ferment correctly, correctly or, you know, within certain guidelines, um, you know, and the, the, the reason why people are able to survive now is because we understand it a lot better and in understanding it, it's able to be treated, but we're talking about, it's pretty intensive and, and there's good reason to be afraid of botulism because not only are those, those freaky experiences going on, but we're talking about people being on a ventilator for weeks intensive medical and nursing care and interventions um they keep them from worsening so like those weeks and weeks of 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 nursing care and intensive medical care like that it keeps it from worsening but the recovery still takes many weeks and so it's not something that you know as long as it's caught which most of the time anymore it is because the signs are obvious enough and it's known exactly what it is and it happens so infrequently that everyone's just ready and to jump on that. So how is um, it cured? Well, trivalent is one of the most common cures and it comes from horses. Uh, I don't it? know. I don't, it, it's a, it's a brand trivalent is the, the antibody or, or whatnot. The, the, the anti anti serum or, or whatever you want to call it. Non-technical term wise. It's comes from horses. I don't know if they're having to kill horses in order to get it, or if it's just uh, something that horses are immune to. And so they, they, they got it from it. Get I don't know. That's a good question. Can horses get botulism? If you know, send us an email at podcast at Or we'll just look it up and follow up next episode. Yeah. I mean, we'll try. I mean, I just didn't come across that in, in my research and, uh, you, you know, and, it, but it's when we're talking about people dying, the, the world health organization says the current mortality rate is 5%. So not many people are dying from this anymore. Again, not that many people are getting it in the world. There's probably many more and many, many different factors. We're just focusing on the U.S. where that 145 average cases a year. But out of the world, 5% are dying because worldwide, trivalent, a few other methods of, of, of helping are, are available. And, you know, as long as someone's in an area where they can get intensive care, a lot of these people are being shipped to specific areas then to, to, to get that um, specific care. But, you know, it's... It's, you know, another interesting thing is that it, it's very common in waterfowl. In what? Waterfowl, birds of the water, like geese or ducks. And duck, uh, an estimated 10,000 to 100,000 birds die annually of botulism. Well, so, so birds sad. get it a lot worse than we do. And uh, ducks get it the worst of all. They, for some reason, are much more able to, to get it. So That's really sad. Yeah. And so I think there was like, you know, a year or two ago, there was like, a lot of birds that were dying and you know there was questions about what was going <gasps> oh, on yeah, i remember that was I don't that know what if, that was i don't know i don't i didn't look back to see but that very well because it can kill large flocks of birds at the same time they all get into an infected pond or, or waterway or whatnot they can all kind of get it because it's water marine life and um soil those are the areas where clostridium um the 
that's where it, it's going to be the bacteria so it likes water and soil um clostridium botulinum grows in those those areas i mean that's where you'll find it now the the actual botulin which is again that's what the toxin is clostridium botulinum isn't deadly in itself it's when it's producing and proliferating and and this is one one thing where i couldn't really fine-tune it exactly to find out exactly what was going on i'll have to look further about if the botulin is only produced when if it's you know it may be such a small amount that's produced unless it is really growing and growing and growing you know if it, it and again we'll get into those environments that it that it does do that in and it's when it doesn't have competition and different things that it can proliferate to such a great extent it doesn't take very much botulin but it probably takes enough product or reproduction of multiplication of the C botulinum to actually to create the botulin. But when, when what's, what's going on is it's created when it's multiplying again, and it's, it's a low level or absence of oxygen that it needs in order to grow well. So if there's not a low level of oxygen, which there is in a soil, there, I guess in some marine aspects would be, but you know, there's plenty of, oxygen the water too as far as i understand but um i don't know exactly how that plays in for for marine life but we're really looking at, at dirt and soil for this for the most part so it needs low levels of oxygen it's anaerobic bacterium it doesn't need oxygen and so no oxygen is even better it's a little freaky when things that need oxygen to grow i don't well, know why. a lot of bacteria don't and um good bacteria don't as well you know so the other thing it needs is low acidity, which again brings us back to canning foods. Canning foods generally have low levels or, I mean, they have no oxygen once they're canned and sealed and they a lot of times have low acidity. So if we're talking about pickles or tomatoes, high acidity, those can be done in a, in a water bath uh, canning method. Again, we're not going to get into canning methods here, but wasn't until pressure cookers became common that it was able to get hot enough to kill the C botulinum. Before that, it takes a long time. It takes a lot of heat to kill it. And the reason for that is because it creates spores. So what this bacteria does is it defends itself or prolongs its life. It can encapsulate its DNA. It's not technically a spore in the sense of offspring but it is the dna required to recreate itself to bring itself back to life so it's kind of like a iron man suit of sorts it, it if it finds that it's a dangerous area like it's heating up or otherwise it encapsulates its dna and saves it for later That's it can last so... years like that it's amazing it's yeah. awesome you know it's like um you know the the taxonomic breakdown of this is it's the phylum of bacteria referred to as the firmicutes and the firmicutes aren't really that cute because most of them are generally kind of dangerous <laughs> but they're the ones a lot of them are the ones that that sporulate they they create the spores and um you know it's, it's it's referred to as an inactive cell so it's not it's got the dna though it's got everything it needs and it's a thick protective coating so what this allows it to do is survive um, you know, this is in general for the firmicutes that are sporulate, but these spores are able to survive high temperatures, high UV irradiation, extreme dryness, 
chemical damage, enzymatic destruction, and all those things it can do for years. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's 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 kind of actually pretty awesome. But since it can do those things, it's very important when canning low acid vegetables such or as? fruits, such as anything other than pickles or tomatoes for the most part. Okay. Um, it's important to do a, a, a pressure canning method. And so by pressure canning, it's able to get up to that, like what, 240 degrees or, or whatnot. I'm not a canner, so I'm I don't, sorry, I don't know. Pressure versus what? Pressure canning versus water bath canning. So you can do water bath with boiling water, can it, seal it. Then it's okay because if it's a high acid, like uh, C. botulinum, the Clostridium botulinum cannot survive in, or it may survive. Again, we're not talking about like it completely necessarily dying completely, but it's not able to proliferate. It's not able to multiply because it, it doesn't do well in high acid, which brings us to fermentation. Fermentation is creating an, an, an ideal environment that's opposite of what Clostridium botulinum is good in. So why do people then fear botulism and fermentation? Why do people fear it? Well, there's many different reasons. Um, and Why not like associated with canning versus fermenting? Or is it because kind of canning and fermenting go hand to hand a lot of times? I think that while fermentation is becoming much more popular, it's kind of been something that generally has been replaced by f- canning for many years for many people because it, I don't know why. I don't know why people maybe lean towards canning or otherwise. Canning does preserve things for longer. Arguably, it's destroying more of the nutrients or whatnot, and it's not a living food. So if that's important to a person, that's one reason to ferment. But, you know, we'll, we might do a canning versus fermentation episode in the future, but not, um, it, you know, it's it's why um, canning is considered okay. I think it's because of a lot of it, it, it deals with heat. You know, you're killing, you're cooking. I mean, not cooking, but you're, you're, you are... It's kind of like overcooking broccoli. Like what? What do you mean? Canning. Just uh, totally destroying everything in it. Well, we're not destroying everything in it. There's still nutrients in canned food. I didn't know that. I mean, I don't... It's not... Uh, well, there'd be no reason to eat it if it was like empty of... Well, for just preservation and having food to eat. Yes, and we eat food for nutrients, so there's still... I guess, yeah. There's, it's not destroying the food completely. There's still nutrients in canned it, in canned foods. We're not talking about like it's like fermentation is amazing and canned foods aren't. Like there's there's reasons to can, and a lot of that is long term preservation. You're not going to have fermented sauerkraut for more than like you know maybe you could go like a year or possibly two, but you're not going to be able to go for a long period of time like you can for long term canning things if you're planning for the end of the world or otherwise. Sauerkraut's only going to get you so far. Okay. But, um, but canning, looking at it a little bit more, it sterilizes, you know, it wipes out the competition. And that's the major thing. We're talking about wiping out the competition by wiping out the competition. And if it's not treated properly, like if someone's doing a water bath canning with green beans, green beans themselves aren't acidic enough. And so if it, if you're not going up to high enough temperatures, which is something like 12 hours of boiling 
if, if you're doing a water bath canning, it's not even, I mean, it's Wait, not recommended. You boil it for 12 hours? No, you, that's what you would do if you're trying to kill it off. Like it can sustain oh. high heat for a very, very long time, possibly longer than that. That's not recommended or anything like that. Pressure canning is what's recommended. So if you're going to do green beans, they're low acid. They need to go up to even higher temperatures, way higher than boiling. So 240 degrees um, Fahrenheit are how high it can go with, with pressure canning. Again, I don't know enough about pressure canning to know exactly all those things, but pressure canning allows for a much higher temperature of boiling or of of heating something in water. And so by doing that, you're able to wipe it out. But if you don't heat it long enough or high enough, then everything else is pretty much wiped out. And then you're just left with this toxin creating botulism making creation, this little monster that can just start multiplying. And especially since can jars are sealed, then you have that just growing in there all by itself. Now, this isn't about being, yes, it's not about being afraid of canning. I am just not as interested in canning. I like fermentation and, um, you know, but it's nothing against it. And um, why is that? Why is what? That you're not interested in canning. Well, some of it is a little bit of those nutrients things. Some of it is just in general. Um, it's, it's not as much fun to me. It's a little, you know, sterilization and, and, you know, specific numbers uh, and temperatures and different things like that. Fermentation is a little bit more artsy. I feel it's a little bit more creative. It's not as, not as strict, but obviously you got to follow lines of, 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 and rules to a certain extent, but it's a lot easier to break thing rules and whatnot. Whereas canning, you really kind of have to follow the guidelines of everyone that's come before. Yeah, and I guess you don't you don't like you're not fermenting to preserve food long term. So I'm that's fermenting more for taste. So yes, pre- uh, canning really doesn't make sense because fermentation will last plenty long enough. I mean, it, fermentation will last me all winter, and especially all really adding need. fermentation with refrigeration, um, then that extends things even longer. And it's just it tastes good. Canned stuff. Well, you can make pickles and turn them into fermented. I mean, the similar taste is a fermented pickle. It's by adding vinegar, boiling vinegar, and otherwise. So it's just not. It's just not the same thing. So Those fermented pickles are delish. Yes, they are, and the yeah. texture is awesome. So texture is another reason why. I mean, yeah, some canned things are kind of mushy. I mean, I'm sure you can do crisp, plenty of crisp kind of things, but yeah, I mean, it's focusing more again on this this botulism stuff, though. It's um, you know, again, if it's not heated high enough or long enough, it's going to create a, a, a perfect environment for the clostridium botulinum to take over, take charge. And it's also important to think about if there is an item like a canned item that kind of worried that maybe it didn't can correctly. It isn't the, the, the botulin that's created is not heat sensitive or is heat sensitive. So it's not heat tolerant. It's not going to last. So if there is like someone gives you some canned beans and you don't feel comfortable, like, "Eh, I don't know if they really follow strict guidelines or whatnot. Just recook them. Boil them for 10 minutes and it destroys the toxin. It's easy enough. Yeah. So if you're unsure, probably just safer to, unless you're willing to risk, paralysis and a 5% chance of mortality. I'd say just stick with, you know, things that you know were canned correctly or again, fermented vegetables because fermented foods are high 
in acids. It's creating an environment where lactic acid bacteria, and we're talking specifically more so about fermented vegetables and fruits and different things of that nature, um, dairy as well. Uh, I mean, it's creating an environment of lactic acid bacteria that create lactic acid. So there you got the high acid in order to create those. Also, most ferments use a high salt base. Not yum. high, but there's, yum, there's, yum. there's salt in it as well. So that's another thing that see botul- uh, botulinum doesn't do well in. What is the the most common, what kind of food causes it the most? Or is there is there a pattern that like certain foods um, Canned have... foods are, the, home canned foods are the most prevalent. But there, is there like a specific type of canned food? Like uh, green well, beans versus... Green beans are on the USDA and CDC website as an example. It's also where you know, the kind of historical perspective comes from of this fear is that green beans were often like the cases of entire families being wiped out because they ate a bad batch of canned beans. Canned beans are just really low in acid unless you're adding vinegar or other things to it. And it's not going to, um, it's not going to work unless it's pressure. It cannot defend itself. The vegetable's not doing anything, but you know, you're wiping out all of their bacteria. So there's nothing to, there's no defense there. Yeah. So what, um, what fermented foods have are high, higher acids. They have salt. And even for ones that are not having salt or, or low levels of salt, as long as fermented correctly, they're creating the lactic acid, the lactic acid bacteria proliferate. If the environment, the temperature and everything are, are correct, then you're going to get that acid at least. And that's all you really need. But the salt adds even more to it. And it's a competitive environment full of bacteria. It's kind of like the parallel of fermented dairy products with fermented dairy products or stepping back to pasteurized versus raw milk. If you leave raw milk out on the the countertop, it's going to clabber. It's going to ferment with the native lactic acid bacteria in the milk. If you pasteurize the milk, leave that pasteurized milk out on the countertop. It just goes bad. Well, it's more likely to go bad. There, yeah, sure, there's a chance that I guess it could clabber and turn into something decent. But the only way to really guarantee that is to add a starter culture to it, as in when making yogurts or otherwise. So it's adding good beneficial bacteria back to it to get a consistent result. Obviously, if you leave raw milk out on the countertop, you're going to get inconsistent results because it's going to be whatever native bacteria are there with, depending on what the cow ate, what was on the udders, everything like that. But still, even with raw milk, leaving that on the countertop, it's more than likely, uh, it's either going to be obviously bad or it's going to have still plenty of beneficial lactic acid bacteria that the environment's just right for it. Milk is just perfect for it. It's a natural coevolution of sorts. It's going to produce something that is drinkable. Maybe not always great, but most yogurts and different things came from, you know, clabbered milk originally that tasted good and they kept proliferating it by adding it to future batches of milk. I guess just really quickly back to my original question or previous question. So there isn't like a specific canned item that's causing it, just canning. Home canning, anything other than tomatoes or pickles or anything other that have high acid. So if you're adding vinegars to things, that's not going to, like anything pickled, like pickled anything as in putting boiling vinegar into it, that form of pickling, non-fermented pickling 
those are going to be fine in a hot water bath. So it's, it's pretty hard to screw those kind of things up. I'm sure sterilization is important and different things like that, but it's, it's a lot harder to screw that up. It's a lot easier to screw up something that is low acid like green beans or any other kind of, of canned something that doesn't have the acid because you're wiping out all the bacteria. That's where the real fear is. You're wiping out any competition so that the one thing that's highly toxic that can survive the high heat is left to in a perfect environment where it can just have a playground for itself. So that's, that's really where the, the issue comes. Now, when we're talking about fermented vegetables, there's, there's a guy named Fred Bright. Bright. I don't know exactly. He has a D and a T at the end. I'm not exactly sure. But I'll say Fred Bright. He's a USDA food science research unit. He's part of that. And um, a couple of years ago, he published a paper, a very interesting paper. So it's, it's, you know, a decent length um, journal article on the survival of E. coli in cucumber fermentation brines. So we're looking specifically at what, um, you know, kind of pathogenic bacteria, specifically they're looking at E. coli there. How, how likely does that survive in a naturally fermented cucumber? So pickles. Okay. Ferment. So fermented. Yes. Fermented. Fermented. Well, fermentation is pickling, but just separating. Canning. Sorry. Canned. Not canned. No, okay. we're talking about fermentation here. And what he says is that lactic acid bacteria compete with the E. coli and other bacteria. So other bacteria, like other things such as C. botulinum, it's being competed with. And it's um, and what's interesting is that the, the lactic acid bacteria cause other bacteria to die off rather quickly. So once they take hold, they have that perfect environment for them, salt and vegetables uh, in, in moisture, high moisture, they're, they're, they're good to go. And they produce other things than just acids. They're not just producing lactic acid. They're producing other antibacterial things of sorts. I mean, they're, they want to survive. They want to proliferate. They're killing off the other bacteria. There, there are, there are friends. Lactic acid bacteria are, are, are <laughs> friends. And, um, a quote from, from Fred is, he says in, Lactic acid bacteria are highly efficient killers of other bacteria, and they do a marvelous job. This is why vegetable fermentations pretty much always work. It's been working for thousands of years. It's one of the oldest technologies known to man, and it always works. And the reason is these lactic acid bacteria are very good at what they do, and we take advantage of that as a technology, end quote. What he's saying here is, again, fermented vegetables are safe. I mean, he says there, there are no known cases of people getting ill from properly fermented vegetables. And, you know, by properly, we're just talking about good salt ratios and under the brine. Would you say pretty much if it tastes good, it's good? Well, you know, all I'm saying is that the risk of people getting, getting ill from this, from fermenting vegetables is, is pretty low. And that's what Fred Bright says. You know, when we're talking about food spoilage though, you know, when you're talking about, would you be able to tell if it's bad? Yeah. Generally, that's food spoilage is more of a cultural thing. And I, I, I have linked to an article in, in the show notes for that as well, firmup.com slash podcast slash 14. And, you know, food spoilage is comes from organisms such as yeast, molds, and bacteria. But it's, you know, yes, off flavors give us warnings. But. Or smells. Yeah. Odors are you know they're they're giving off a warning 
that food is spoiled. But what's interesting is that food spoilage organisms are not necessarily harmful to consume. It's not the, the, the putrefying organisms. I mean, they, you can still eat things. And you'll see this in different cultures where certain foods would be completely disgusting to someone not coming from that ethnic background or cultural background. Unless it was like bad. Well, that it would be bad and that some people may get ill from it as well because they don't aren't used to that gut micro um their gut microbiome isn't used to that bacteria. I guess that makes sense. So just because a person gets ill from something doesn't mean that it's toxic or poisonous or whatnot. It just means that they're not used to being able to eat it. So there is some cultural food spoilage sickness type things that all kind of correlate together. So it is a kind of a learned thing, both through the the bacteria in the gut learn based on what we're exposed to, as well as we just kind of culturally learn what is good and what's not and what smells bad and what doesn't. I mean, you see that with people that really love stinky cheese and other people can't stand it. Well, I'm sure you're pretty sure I've had bad milk by accident, like not realizing it was bad. And I like started drinking it and. And it tasted bad. Oh, yeah. I mean, it had a weird taste. Probably because I'm not taste, used but... to it. But yeah, it smelled bad once I was close up to my nose. And I mean, I had a sip of it more than once and nothing happened. Sure, it was not very much, but... Well, and yeah, and a lot of the times that... Like our nose and our taste buds really aren't that good at differentiating good and bad. And something like well, Clostridium no. botulinum, no, there's no, there's no signs. We, we aren't going to know. There are some cheeses that smell disgusting and they're so delicious. That is that is very true, and you know there. So there there are differences. There's definitely differences between putrefying and and um, acidifying bacteria. And we as humans generally go towards, or I think always kind of go towards acidifying bacteria. So those things that make things a little bit more sour. Um, you know, rotten cabbages are not are are not the same as as nice acidified sour cabbages, sauerkraut. You know, so so some of the warning signs, yes, of of things that have aren't going to be enjoyable because that's also important. You know, it's like, well, if I leave something out on the countertop, am I going to be afraid that it's going to be something that's um, that, you know, I shouldn't eat or that's, you know, it's going to be bad. Like if I smell it and it smells bad, like, I mean, I should I just stay away from it? Yes, sure. If it doesn't smell good and don't feel comfortable tasting it, then just try again. I mean, it's, they're kind of obvious when oh, it, we're mean, talking about fermented vegetables, you know, things like off flavors and colors, slimy coatings and mushy textures, like all of those kind of things, along with fuzzy surface molds. A lot of times you'll hear fuzzy surface molds, just peel them off. If it's like a rainbow colored mold, like some of those really bright colors. Sure. Like, but like blue and, and white, those you can just kind of scrape off funky colors. Maybe it's been in, infested with a, a mold you may not want. But most of the time, it's going to be kind of a grayish, bluish, or whitish mold. You can kind of just scrape those off the top. Most people, a lot of people will do it. Sure, if someone has sensitivities or allergies to different molds, they might need to go about it differently. And there are different ways to ferment without getting the molds to the same extent molds through harsh crocks. Or molds can freak a person out, but most cheese, aged cheese, is going to have had molds on it, or sometimes molds in it purposely. So. Molds themselves are not necessarily needing to be freaky, but they freak you out, you say? Yeah, they, they freak me out. I don't know. Just if I see mold, I just want to throw the whole thing out. But generally, it's okay. Like mold on bread. Sure, the old bread might be getting old, but you can just but cut I, off that chunk. I guess for me, the freaky part is like, well, how do I know there isn't mold on other parts of it that I can't see it and I don't want to eat it and then die yes. from it? And, well, you're not 
again, if it's a grayish, bluish, whitish mold, probably not going to die from it. Not a mold expert. Still, but yes, it can freak you out. I have scraped off plenty of molds. I have, um, you know, uh, mold is a is, is everywhere anyway, and you're probably eating some mold spores anyway in general, even when they're not fermenting things um, on raw vegetables or whatnot. Um, and raw vegetables are a whole nother topic. I mean, actually much more likely to get sick from raw vegetables than fermented vegetables. Even if there's pathogenic bacteria in high enough, like E. coli, salmonella, any of these other big name popular ones or non-popular ones that we don't know off the top of our heads out of fear of these different foods. Like you hear things in the news about them, you know, there's, there's been an outbreak or of infection in, in, you know, in peanuts or in, in some raw vegetables or different things like that. That's much more common. Well, and that's how I, I've always felt that way though. I've never, to me, something fermented, it's always a safer alternative than maybe something raw. Like I've never thought of it the other way around. It's always been like, well, this is fermented. I'd prefer to eat this versus not, not saying I've ever had like a big dilemma, but if I had to pick, it'd be the fermented food versus just the raw lettuce, just because of the, what fermentation does to a food. Well, yes, because there's actually very little lactic acid bacteria on something, say as a cabbage. There's only like one or 2% on that cabbage of lactic acid bacteria, but we create the environment that makes it perfect for lactic acid bacteria to grow and proliferate. And so it takes over, wipes out most everything else, including any pathogenic bacteria that are on it. So if something is raw, it may be more dangerous than fermented. So that's something to tell your friends or to know for yourself. If you have fears of things, you're actually probably safer eating it fermented than eating it raw for vegetables. Totally. Especially depending on where these kind of vegetables are coming from. You know, if you, if you know your source of vegetables or whatnot, sure chances of it, but these large industrialized farming, you know, there's more likelihood to have pathogenic bacteria introduced at some point along the line. And so it's, it's interesting to think about, well, maybe fermented foods are actually safer in that regard in, in, in which they are. You're less likely to get so. sick. Personally, I, I would think that, but that's just me. But it is important to remember that while things that you can see, smell, or hear, not hear, I guess, but, um, you know, <laughs> they can warn of dangerous <laughs> things, but... I hear cabbage. You know, well, sometimes I do hear a jar, a mason jar that's maybe not completely sealed that is kind of like releasing a little bit of CO2. And it's like, oh, that reminds me that I need to burp that jar. I need to release some of that CO2 before it explodes. So, I mean, hearing dangers, but... Good That's save, a non non pathogenic thing. So, but things you 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 see and taste and smell um, can warn you of dangerous things potentially lurking in there, but it's not a guarantee. And um, you know, but again, just look at those surface molds. Aren't something to be as is afraid of. Can scrape it off. But again, if you if it doesn't feel right or if it tastes moldy within, then it's probably sporulated more down into it, and it may not be worth eating, especially if someone's got sensitivities to to molds in general but slimy textures and mushy textures that's more of a a a A preference yeah it's more of like a something didn't necessarily go right uh the way that it's wanted to go and those aren't even necessarily pathogenic bacteria that are in there again we're talking pathogenic or um tainting bacteria that are tainting the flavors they're not 
bad bacteria. You're not going to be hurt by eating it. But mushy sauerkraut isn't something that I want. I want something that's nice and like crunchy, even if it has been fermented for weeks. At least have that nice, a little bit of crunch to it. If it's mushy or slimy, those aren't enjoyable, but it's actually a lot of times the same bacteria that are used in the process of making the flavors in the sauerkraut. It's those flavors um, that we want in the bacteria we want, but it's actually the, um, you know, if, if they get out of control, like mesenteroides uh, uh, is, is one of the bacteria that um, it starts out in the beginning of the process for sauerkraut. If it stays with it for too long um, and other bacteria don't take over in the second stage and third stage, then it can kind of get mushy. So it's, or slimy, um, you know, in that same way with other bacteria, that's just one example is they're not going to hurt a person. They're just not going to be, they're going to hurt the, the excitement maybe that a person has had for waiting. Yeah. It's going to, it's going to be disappointing. Um, but botulism is really the only one to really worry about. And we're talking more about canning. If a person is fermenting, one, one place where you will see, just to kind of wrap up this botulism stuff, one place where you will see potential issues are in um, fermented beaver tail. Have you ever had fermented beaver tail? No, I did not realize people ate beaver tails. Beaver tail and claws, paws, or however you want to say it. Interesting. Why those parts? Well, why are those parts fermented? It's a traditional thing in Alaska. I don't know enough about it to, and I've never tried it myself. I'm assuming that's probably one of those cultural things where a person kind of has to be born into that or otherwise for it to sound appetizing. Beaver tail doesn't really sound great to me in a lot of ways, but... I'm assuming they're using the other parts of the animal though too. They're eating it probably fresh or otherwise, but fermenting those kind of things because those aren't really things that are probably as edible. Kind of probably using fermentation more as pre-digestion as a way to break down some of the um, enzymes in it so it's more digestible. Well, because I, I'm like a, when, you know, slightly off, but, you know, in Croatia, when you are, have a, when you're roast, when you're like have a pig on a stick and when the ears get really crunchy, you just cut off the piece of ear and eat it. It's like a chip. It's delicious, but people tend to freak out if they're not from that culture. Oh, as in like just for cultural tastes and, yeah. and likings and I'm, things I'm like that guessing so you're not saying that beaver tail would get crunchy by no no, no roasting no. it i Just mean maybe comparing like the the uniqueness of consumption of something yeah and and so it's interesting that there has been more cases fewer lately but especially in the 80s 90s early 2000s there was more cases of fermented beaver tail or fermented beaver we'll just go with that causing um cases of botul- botulism and that's more of a shift of using non-traditional fermentation methods. Traditionally, that beaver tail and beaver claw or any other parts of the beaver that they're using are being put into vessels or putting directly into pits in the ground. And um, that makes a big difference as opposed to using modern plastics or glass and fermenting at room temperature indoors. So underground in a pit, that's a traditional method and one that the CDC and other organizations were trying to educate people who like their beaver tail up in Alaska that educating them on the importance of using traditional methods. So they weren't saying that fermentation of beaver tail was dangerous or or would Just really cause properly. much of an issue. Do it the traditional way before using modern laziness 
it was kind of what it comes down to is by not digging a hole in the ground, by not putting it directly in there, by not sealing it up. Um, it, uh, it doesn't have like at, at those higher temperatures, the Clostridium botulinum has a better chance of, of growing And why it is in that substrate is partly similar to how it was with sausage, you know, um, that it doesn't have a whole lot of sugars, carbohydrates to it, it's high in protein. It's high in different things. So lactic acid bacteria need a little bit more um, massaging to get them to be the ones to proliferate in that. Otherwise, so I'm assuming you can taste botulism. It's one of those things that no, just happens. It's, it's a silent killer. And it's um tasteless killer, I guess is what you'd say. Yeah, it's 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 dangerous. Canning, it's especially important to only can by following guidelines, you know, get some training, get read some books, figure out how to do it. There's nothing dangerous about canning. It's understood how botulism comes about. But it's important to understand for canning especially. But for fermentation, you're probably going to be fine, especially if you're talking vegetables. If you're talking meat, that's a totally different thing. You need to to understand the concepts behind how things ferment and how to get the lactic acid going in a low-carb, low-sugar environment. But for vegetables, fruits, dairy, anything you're going to leave on the counter like that, it's generally considered safe. And the risk is so low. Not saying that like something with couldn't happen. you eat. Yeah, there's risk in eating. There's risk in living. And Pretty certain much. risks like fermentation are so low in my mind and the benefits so high, as in things taste great. Arguably, there's decent health benefits. Um, it makes fermenting them, you know, just seem great and so if 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 you have any last bit of fears, just again feel free to um start a discussion on you know our or ask questions on our Facebook page or you know email us and uh you know we're happy to point you in the right direction. We're not experts, we're just fermentation enthusiasts, and so you know we're there you'll see in the show notes that there are a lot of things from reputable sources that explain a little bit more about this botulism. If you're, if you're still having reservations or whatnot, but in general, you'll find that most people or anyone that ferments, it's like, it's, it doesn't create an environment for botulism. It's just not the same kind of, it's not, it's not the environment for it. And so make those sauerkrauts, make those kimchi and, you know, thinking of kimchi actually makes me think of the kimchi challenge. Of course, it makes you think of the kimchi, kimchi oh, that challenge. Was, that was actually um, the best part of the Good Food Festival. It was. It and was the fact that we got to try them all. Yeah. I mean, the sausage the sausage making class was, was good. It was going with uh, short sausages. I mean, um, sure, there's still microorganisms in that if you're leaving it at temperatures that allow for, for um, some bit of fermentation over a couple of days while the seasonings are getting in. But that's more enzymatic yeah, um, the, things going that, on. the sausage that they had offered uh, in the in the class. That was a short sausage. I mean, it was brief. It's not, it, it was, yeah, definitely. I've never had any kind of sausage like that. It almost tasted like raw. It like they didn't cook it for very long at all. And even though well, it was it was cooked. I mean, it um, was just. I it think was it like was just the so juiciness moist and felt raw. But it was well, really good. You're more used to your like more dried smoked. out, smoked. Yeah, so that Croatian. for me that was a, a an experience. But it was good. It was delicious. It was just something I haven't had really had before that way. Yeah, I'm more interested in salamis and and other longer. Yeah, me too. 
I they mean, have. Again, a, I feel like they have a deeper, richer yeah. flavor taste. I like, like. I like something a little bit richer and funkier. And so it's. It's. I just. I'm gonna have to learn that on my own. And um, what is it? Shukuri instead. I mean, I'm gonna have to learn about uh, fermenting and uh, curing meats. I would like to do that at some point. Um, uh, again, takes a little bit more understanding. Vegetables are simple. Awesome. And, and, and vegetables, like, again, going back to that kimchi stuff, there was, I think, what, 15 different things that were competed with. We, um, we watched as there was four judges and one of those judges was Sander Katz, um, author of wild fermentation and most recently the art of fermentation. So both awesome books that you should check out. And, uh, you know, uh, Sander Katz, I, I can, appreciate what he was talking about as in it was kind of hard for him to um you know to to want to be or uh to when, judge to and want pick to be the a, best yeah to pick the best because you know it's like they're all different kinds of flavors and that's really the kind of great thing about um fermentation and home fermentation is that really it doesn't like what one person finds amazing another may not and so fermenting and, and making kimchis especially there's all kinds of kimchis there's over 200 different kinds of traditional kimchis in korea and what we're calling kimchis are just fermented vegetables um and not even necessarily spicy and speaking of spicy it's even important to remember that for kimchi spice is a relatively new thing because spice was a new world north america south america ingredient so it wasn't until that was brought back from voyages that that ever became added in uh, what is now considered a very traditional kimchi well, at one point didn't have spice and there are um white kimchis that are lighter that don't have that that spice and there were lighter kimchis in this competition and this com- i do love the spice though i i and do as well ginger i love the spice and the ginger and and everything and about these things. And crispiness is great as well. And and this competition itself was with different um, chefs in the Chicago area at the Good Food Festival this last weekend. One thing that I would say that I was a little disappointed in was that it was a blind tasting and it was fine that they were in little cups. But I would have liked the, – and they were focusing mainly on the um, taste and texture and originality – of the kimchi that people were making because they, they could do whatever they wanted. And it was encouraged to make them original, not just do a really basic kimchi or, or whatnot, or if they were, um, you know, be it a different ingredient or be it something, be something that just wowed the judges was ideally the, this challenge, this competition. My one disappointment was that it wasn't also focusing on presentation because especially since we're talking about chefs, it's like, otherwise it's like, well, why I, I, I real I realized why they probably didn't have home chefs doing this as well like they had to be rest restaurant owners workers I mean, then how do you pick and choose yeah i mean it'd be there'd probably be a lot more entry so this is a nice way to limit it i don't know if that was the reason or whatnot but i just feel like with chefs it's like well presentation should be part of that as well so i, I and it would have made better photography um for the blog i also think the presentation write. would have added a lot more time and work to it and it would have just been a really long competition then whereas this way it was long as it is and having them in little cups no presentation just as in like plated well no i know but i think that takes time sure sure yes i mean you're talking about a lot more commitment for a relatively small competition that these people were probably doing yeah so i can't understand why they didn't do it i understand it'd be nice to see it it would be nicer and there i on the facebook page and twitter had put 
a link to a, a competition that was recent somewhere else. I can't remember where it is now. It was a few weeks ago and it was presentation as well. And uh, that's kind of what I, I guess maybe I had some expectation based on that, which presentation did a lot for those because it, it, it was about the texture. It was about the presentation. I mean, using in t- uh, whole bok choy versus like chopped Napa cabbage, I mean, make different kinds of things. And um, that one was going more for entire meals based around kimchi as well, or, or more inspiration beyond just simple kimchi. So I understand why that one was more presentation. This one wasn't. I just wish I, I would have liked to have seen things a little differently. But I will say, you know, for one, it was it was great to hear Sander Katz talk again and um, and the other judges, uh, you know, uh, it, it was nice to hear what they had to say about those things. It was great a nice pleasant surprise that at the end we got to try a lot of the kimchi. It was very haphazard as to how it was done and and a lot of people didn't wait around and be patient. I mean we probably waited for about 30 minutes before we were actually able to try anything no, after the competition. I would say it was 30 minutes, 15 20 at most. Well, anyway, we waited when a waiting while. right next to the 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 wafting smell of of kimchi. It was worth it. Oh, it was definitely worth the wait, but it was like <laughs> But smelling the kimchi being right there, so close, but just not quite there. I mean, you know, it, it, it was hard to be patient, but my, it was My favorite it. part was just trying all the different ones. Like, let me try this one. What about this one? And I love Brussels, Brussels sprouts in kimchi, I realize. Um, there was like a really, really sweet kimchi, which was definitely new. I'd never had sweet kimchi. Um, but yeah, it was just, I realized I don't like kale in kimchi. It's like all of these things that I never really thought about kimchi and um, it's kind of like now I have a pretty good idea of the things I want to try, of things I might like more. And I realized I really like ginger and kimchi. Um, a so lot. the ones that lacked ginger or spice. Yeah, I mean as they much were still good, but it was that's that's like a kicker for me. That's just like adds that final touch to to uh, to a kimchi. So yeah, I I I mean there were and there were some actually I didn't even like that much. You didn't like the one with black truffles in it. No, I didn't. It just. It, it, too, it didn't seem like the, the combination of flavor mixed well together. It could also be um, that we didn't have anything to like cleanse our palate to possibly, separate yeah. these it different was more flavors. Like one, uh, yeah. But I also realized I don't like soft. Um, there was one, I don't know what was in it, but it was just a mushier kimchi. And I like a crispier kimchi. Um, but the winner, I really did like her her batch a lot um i don't think it was my favorite there was one other that i really enjoyed but i don't it, it obviously wasn't the winner but yeah i yeah the green zebra was the the winner and uh i've never been to that restaurant in chicago yeah. um it, and it was a good a good kimchi too yeah it was it was a very good kimchi it was definitely understandable why it won it was um you know relatively traditional but not so it, it was still unique enough um, and, uh, off the top of my head, I, I don't have my notes in front of me for that stuff, but it's that it, you know, it's, it's, it, it was good, whatever, whatever she did. And, um, and there were a lot of spice in hers too. And I think that's what I like. That, Someone that, had done a really, really simple batch. It was pretty much just cabbage. And I don't even know if there was, I tried it and it was just, it tasted like a very mild, mildly fermented cabbage um almost kind of like uh, a thing that was in the process of becoming sauerkraut it was it was really simple um but yeah i do like i like my spice too in my food yeah and the the thing that kimchi. inspired us was I, or at least for myself i've stayed with very um 
simple kimchi, you know, sure. Sometimes being a little crazy and throwing in some fruits or different things. That's still very traditional, but, um, you know, uh, sticking with the spicy ginger filled kimchi. And after trying about 15 different kimchi, I, I mean, I think that we didn't try all of them. I think we, we were probably we about 12, 12 or, 13 or so. Yeah, we were, we were pretty close to all of them. And, and sorry well, it was kind of hard to, chefs. towards the end, it's like, which one did we not try? So yeah, was, because again, it was haphazard. It was kind of like, get, like reach our hands to call for a certain one wherever we could. And there was wonderful Good Food Festival volunteers that were, were trying to dig out these things from all different kinds, size jars and with plastic forks so it they were doing they great with to, yeah it was just for um, us we just couldn't yeah i mean I, I don't think they were planning on it necessarily um thankfully the the mc was um you know had called out hoping that that would be an option and I, they made it happen which was great i don't know if they i don't I, it didn't feel like they had planned on on doing that aspect of it yeah i didn't um, i wasn't i wasn't prepared for it i assumed i mean it would it was well, awesome. i was i was thinking though while the competition was going so I was like it'd be really cool to be able to at least know what they're tasting and know what they're picking and it which was... didn't seem like it would be possible because there was actually a pretty big turnout i mean would you say there was what like oh there um, were 60 70 100 people yeah i think 100 i mean somewhere around 50 ish no more than that yeah, that were in attendance watching watching the thing. So whatever it was, I mean, there was a pretty decent turnout for the the kimchi challenge, and um, you know, so but it's kind of inspired me to really kind of experiment with some different off the wall kimchi's, and not necessarily always following recipes, just experimenting with different flavors and well, thinking about like how they can go together and what you have. Yeah, and thinking about it seasonally as well. So that's one thing that we are going to be doing, not so much in the podcast, but on firmup.com and on the blog. Be, be focusing on different recipes and um, haven't figured out the schedule of, of, of release of those kind of things, but be looking for that. If you are interested in some kimchi inspiration and you're, you're either made kimchi before and are stuck in a rut and want to try something different, or if um, it's your first kimchi, find one that sounds good. I mean, if you, if you don't think you like kimchi, uh, there's plenty of things out there that you might find one that you do like. And so you know, to keep up on the blog, to keep up on the podcasts, uh, all these different things. Um, you know, you can find the show notes for this episode at firmup.com slash podcast slash 14. And you can send us an email at podcast at firmup.com. We're on Twitter at firmup and we are on Facebook at facebook.com slash firmup. And you know, we really, are anywhere from up can be found. Yes, anywhere. I mean, you know, we're on Google Plus as well. If you're if you if you like that thing, um, you know. And so there's, um, definitely, you know, send us any questions about botulism, about kimchi, about any of these kind of things. I mean, if you have concerns or uh, suggestions, I mean, send them this way. Experiences. Um, if for some reason you have gotten botulism from fermenting your own vegetables, um, that would be very surprising. But would love to hear first-hand experience but again doesn't seem like there's a case so just uh get in touch with us and uh we look forward to seeing you next week and get in touch with your ferment itself firm up